We're going to talk about Jesus being led of the Spirit. Now, Mark doesn't give a lot of detail. He just says, Jesus did this, and then he went there, and he did this, and he did that. Matthew and Luke give a whole lot more detail, but I'm going to try and just stay with the, the pattern of the Gospel of Mark and, and draw on some things that you probably already know. But once you get the idea, Jesus, what does it mean that he was led of the Spirit? By way of background, look there in verse 12, uh, verse 12 of chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. These two verses describe him going into the wilderness. Mark chapter 1 and verse 12. And immediately, this is immediately after the baptism, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Boom, that's it. Two verses, and it's done. Move on to the next subject. That's how Mark writes. All right? So, as you well know, Jesus has just finished getting baptized in verse 10, 11, 12, uh, or, or 9, 10, 11. And uh, I want you to notice the words that, in, that jump out. First of all, did you notice the word immediately? That will show up 17 times in the book. There in verse 12, it says, and immediately. Go down to verse 28. What is the word? And immediately. Go to verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. Uh, verse 42. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him. You'll see that phrase, immediately. You'll also see another word, straightway. It's one of the hallmarks of Mark. Mark like noting that it was, it was when Jesus said something, it got done. It was immediate. Another phrase that you'll see that jumps out at you, one is where it says he was led of the Spirit um, and uh, uh, driven of the Spirit. We're going to just talk about being Spirit-driven. What do you think that means? When, when it comes to, I know people who are driven by anger. You might know that. How about people who are compassion-driven? They're just driven by compassion to do what they do. What else drives people? Money. That drives people to do things. Here, Jesus is compelled. He is pulled, even pushed, to do something. Now, the Holy Spirit took the man Christ Jesus. You didn't have to compel the deity part of Jesus, but the man Christ Jesus is, is compelled. He's driven to a place where there's going to be a head-to-head, toe-to-toe -to -toe fight with Satan. Another phrase that shows up here is the word wilderness. And the wilderness, you'll see there in verse 13, he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and he was with the wild beast. So you see the phrase, this is an area where animals are running wild. They're, so it's a dangerous place that Jesus has walked into. And he's going with an army, right? He has no disciples with him. He is totally alone. And then the last phrase is, it says, to be tempted of the devil. So the will of God for that moment in time for Jesus Christ was to, to go straight into a battle. And, and that's, that's just crazy because when, when we think about the will of God, it's always to, you know, flowery beds of ease. And no, sometimes God wants you to go straight into the lion's den. And right there is the will of God for you. Now, Jesus is basically, in this encounter, he's going to show us what he had to go through to prove he was the Messiah. 
This is the question. What does Satan constantly ask Jesus in Matthew? Do you remember three questions? Three times he asked the same question. If thou be the Son of God. So he's trying to, he's trying to get him, prove you are who you claim to be. Now, before Jesus ever did any miracle, he had to prove his sinlessness. He had to prove who he really was. And he sets himself apart from all other people who's ever been born, and even from the Antichrist, because will the Antichrist be able to do miracles, yes or no? Oh, yeah. So here's Jesus, the Christ. Before he ever does any miracle, he establishes his sinlessness. Now, what do you think he had to go through, just without even you know, looking it up, but try to think for a second, what did Jesus have to go through to prove he was the Messiah? Think, talk to me. What are some of the things? Okay, he had to endure temptation. What else? Yes? Had not succumbed to temptation. Good, good, good. Meekness? A weakness, okay, as a man, he's going to prove he got hungry uh, and that he was weak. And in his weakest state, he's going to face Satan's temptations and Satan's uh, uh, fight. Um, but we're forgetting something. As the Messiah, he has to prove that he's not king of kings and lord of lords right from the start. He's actually yielded to another authority. As a matter of fact, Jesus came and he was totally yielded to the Spirit of God. He was totally yielded to the Word of God. He didn't come and do anything of his own self, which is breathtaking. Um, uh, he had to endure a confrontation with Satan himself. And you and I couldn't handle it. You and I can, can face into a temptation and we can resist temptation. Nod your head. We can resist temptation. All right? But you can't resist the devil. Without help, you cannot face off Satan's attack. If he ever wanted to pour on his pressure on us, most of us would instantly crumble because we're not prepared for it. A, a, a demonic attack is one thing. The devil himself coming against you. You've got to understand, the second most powerful being in the universe coming against you, and Jesus met him head on as a man. So, and he wins. Amen. I read the last chapter. Okay. So let's look at the obedient life of Jesus. Back there in verse 12, it says, Immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days. How long have you ever had to wait and you said, I'm quitting, I'm giving up, I've waited long enough? We, we, we have an impatient spirit. Here goes Jesus into the wilderness, and he was there for 40 days, tempted of Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, I want you to say, number one, Jesus was a man, as a man, was not in control of his life. That's a profound thought. Well, well, who was in charge of his life? The Spirit of God was. Now, we're going somewhere with this. I want you to understand, Jesus, I'm going to say, I'll say this ahead, Jesus is our example. So, as a man, he's going to teach us how to live as a godly man or woman, and that is I'm, I'm not making my own decisions anymore. I'm trying to find out what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. I'm trying to ask what Jesus wants me to do. I'm trying to find the will of God. So here's somebody, here's Jesus, totally, absolutely, constantly yielded to the Holy Spirit. So when you come up to a road and it says yield, what do you do? 
you let the other car go first, right? You let the other car have its way. If you're in an argument and you yield to the other person, what are you doing? You're letting them win. Uh, when the Holy Spirit wants you to do one thing and your own spirit says, no, I want to do this, which one are you supposed to yield to? The Holy Spirit of God. He was totally yielded to the Spirit of God. He was obedient to the will of God. He was limited by the Word of God. He said, the things that I say are not my own, they're my Father's which sent me. Now, another thing that's crazy about this is, so I want you to take note of two words. One is led by the Spirit, and secondly, he was full of the Spirit of God. Go to, go, go to John chapter 3. Hold your place in Mark. John chapter 3. Gospel of John chapter 3 and verse 30. Now, starting in verse 30, we'll read down to verse 34. It says this, He, this is John speaking, He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. Speaking of Jesus, He that is of the earth is earthy, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. Speaking of nobody's listening to Jesus. He that has received his testimony hath set to the seal, to his seal, that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Who was that? Who is John talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And watch this. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. So John is even testifying when God put the Spirit in Jesus, he didn't put a measure, an amount. He put the fullness of all of the Holy Spirit in Jesus. How many of you have all of the Holy Spirit in you? None of us. All right. Now we're going to learn, we should be filled with the Spirit, but I don't have all of the Spirit. He should have all of me. Does that make sense? Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Coloss I'm sorry, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 in verse 9. For in him, in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Godhead, it's another word for trinity, bodily. So inside the body of Jesus Christ was all of the Father, all of the Word, and all of the Spirit. Okay, so he was full of the Spirit of God. Now this moves to our point, and that is he was our example. Uh, almost everything in the life of Jesus is supposed to be a perfect example of how we should live. 1 Peter 2.21 says, Even hereunto were ye called, because Christ hath also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. So that's what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. He said, do things like I did. Hmm, follow my example. So when it says he was led of the Spirit of God, if you could calculate, if you could add up all of the hours of your day, how many seconds were you actually led of the Spirit versus led of your own flesh? If you were to be honest, it would be embarrassing to admit. Amen? So Jesus, as our example, is a tall order to say, wow, I need to get to where, if the Holy Spirit burdens me about somebody, right then I pray. If the Holy Spirit asks me to open my mouth and to give a gospel tract, Mark's word would be, 
I immediately do it. I yield to his authority. Jesus was not in control of his life. The Holy Spirit was. That's our example. And how do you get that place, Pastor? How do you get to that place where you are able to just do whatever the Holy Spirit says? You get filled with the Holy Spirit. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The commandment is that we are to not be drunk with what? Doesn't even mention strong drink and spirits and things. It says, don't even, don't even mess with wine. Be not drunk with wine. Wherein is excess, it always is excess. You start down that road, you're going to get to where you can't drive and you can't think clearly. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but what should we be filled with? Spirit. So, if I'm filled with wine, what will I act like? Hmm? A fool. Amen? If I'm filled with the Spirit, I will act like Jesus Christ. What a thought. What a thought. Okay, uh, here's a great thought. Here's a great truth. Every Christian gets the Spirit of God at salvation. Now, I've had plenty of people come along and say, boy, you need, you, you're almost there, Pastor. You're, I've actually been told, you're almost there. You need to pray for the anointing and the second blessing so you can get the Spirit of God. And I go, uh, I know what you mean, but I already got the Spirit of God. I just need to be filled with Him. Go to um, Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. Again, Galatians was written because in the day, in, in Paul's day, there was a cult mindset of trying to get people to do a work to get saved and to do works to stay saved. Can you imagine anything more, more ridiculous? So Paul asks this in Galatians 3, in verse 2, he says, This only would I learn of you. This is what I want to hear from you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of... What's the word? Okay, did you get the Spirit by faith or by good works? Go to chapter 4 and verse 6. Chapter 4 and verse 6. And because ye are sons, I've been born again. God sent forth the Spirit of His Son, where? Into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, so when I became a child of God, God put His Spirit in me. Romans chapter 8, go back to the left, find Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Now I know in the book of Acts, there's a transition time where sometimes... Somebody got saved, and then they spoke in tongues, and they were filled with the Spirit. All right, those are transitioned. That was times proving to the Jews that Gentiles got saved. But after a while, people were getting filled with the Spirit without doing anything. They were already filled with the Spirit. Just Well, they get the Holy Spirit just like we do. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For as many as are, there's our key word, led by the Spirit of God, they are the what? All right, now here's a scary thought. All right, you ready for this scary thought? Gavin, you ready for this? Think about this for a second. If I see a Christian life and he's in rebellion against God, what does he look like? Does he look like a person who's born again? No. When you're led by the Spirit of God, that proves you are a child of God. 
And now, I don't have to constantly prove I can fail, but my life should be one of yielded to the Holy Spirit, correct? That's the thing, because I don't have to get the Holy Spirit, I just need to be filled with it. Show you one more. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're in for a little bit of a Bible study. That's what we're doing right now at this moment. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Ephesians 1.13 says this, in whom, also, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. So which came first, belief or the word of God? Which came first? According to that verse, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to catch a... In whom also ye trusted, after ye heard the word of truth. So, the word produced faith. I hear the word of God, faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you heard the word of God, you then trusted, what? The gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were what? Sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So that's the process. All right, now, every Christian gets the Spirit of God at salvation, but we're not full of the Spirit unless we yield like Jesus did. Uh, none of you are drunk. Say amen. All right, there's three of you. If you ever, you got to understand, the world pushes drink. If you ever, if you ever uh, uh, go to a wedding or something, what is everybody doing? Oh, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. The pressure's on to give in, to go with the flow, and, and you know, to get filled with drink and let the drink take over. None of you are full of anger, I hope. None of you, hopefully, are full of envy. But if you ever do get full of envy, if you ever do get full of anger, if you ever do get full of drink, it's because you wanted it. Are you with me? And you said, okay, I'll take it. And if you ever want to get filled with the Spirit, it'll be because you say, I want it. It doesn't just happen, folks. The Holy Spirit just doesn't come and just go, poof, like Tinkerbell. He's got to be asked for. He's got to be yearned for, wanted. Now, what difference does it make if a person is, is a Christian and yet they're not filled with the Spirit? I've already hinted at it. What difference does it make? Why did, why did Jesus get led of the Spirit and be demonstrate that He was full of the Spirit? What difference does it make? I know it's deep. Clue. You won't live like Christ. You're still living like the old you. The only way for, um, for a glove to move like my hand wants to move is if the glove yields to all of my hand in it. And the only way for me to actually live and breathe and move and love and react like Christ is if I'm yielded to Him fully. It makes a big difference whether you're filled with the Spirit just like it makes a big difference you being filled with anything else. All right, so here comes the Messiah's test. We'll read verse 12 and 13. Let's just see briefly what's going on here. just want to give that background there. Verse 12, and immediately, there in Mark, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Bang, bang, bang. What's happened? 40 days of real fasting. No food at all. Who else in the Bible fasted for 40 days? Somebody raise your hand. 
Moses did. You know what? He actually ended up fasting for more than 40 days. He had to go back and fast for another 40 days all over again. Think about it. Why was he fasting? It was in that time of fasting that God gave the first covenant. So here's the Son of God getting and becoming the part, the, the, the establishment of the second, the new covenant. Who else fasted 40 days? Elijah. So when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, guess who two people are with him? Moses and Elijah. There's something about what God brought them through in that valley, the will of God for their life, that was going to set them up as the pinnacle of the law and the prophets and the new covenant, all linked up together. You know, it, it, there's an interesting thought. I read this and I thought it's a very good truth that when Jesus went to that wilderness and he took no food with him and he sought no food and when he was offered to turn stones into food, he refused and he was demonstrating that the kingdom of God is not about food, but about righteousness and holiness and peace. Romans chapter, what is it? Romans chapter 14 says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness. There's, there's, you, even, if you, if, even if you're the poorest man on earth, if you have nothing, if nobody loves you, if everything's against you, if you're all alone and you have the kingdom of God, you have everything. Salvation is more than this world can ever offer with all of its palaces and wealth. So he's 40 days of real fasting. He's suffering affliction in the flesh during those 40 days. He actually suffered. How do you think he felt laying down on the ground without a bed? You ever tried that? How many, how many of you have ever tried to sleep on the floor with the thinnest amount of blankets or covers? When you, when, uh, when you wake up, Ruth, how's your back? Or is that because of your back <laughs> that you try it? You like it? I have strange family members. What did you say? Did you say something? In summer you do? Yeah, but you're, you're different. You're weird. Um, normal people. <laughs> That's a flat surface, but how about on the ground? And for 40 days, there are no B&Bs. There's no hotels. There's no place. He's experiencing the worst of situations for the, an extended period of time. He's very uncomfortable. He's suffering. And it's not just for a few days. I've had to suffer. I've had to suffer with a man cold. I've had to suffer without certain things. But 40 days is a long time. How, 40 days is what? Six weeks? Six weeks without food, with almost no sleep, because guess who's always circling around him in the wilderness? Wild animals. So he's not just going to sleep thinking, oh, everything's going to be honky-dory. He's in danger. It was then that Jesus was tempted. And I mean, he was tempted. Hebrews chapter 4.15 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So he felt the pull, the desire to give in. Thoughts crossed his mind but he was no normal man. Amen? Let me show you how temptation works. James chapter 1. James. Hebrews, James. 
great scripture here, a very summary, a great summary of what temptation is like and how it works. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endured temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God. You can't blame God for your temptation. For God himself cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is, I like this word, drawn away, pulled away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. All right, how does, ten, how does temptation work? Number one, sin is presented. What does Satan say to uh, Jesus? He said, you have the ability to get whatever you want. What are you doing hungry here, Jesus? Come on, take these bread, take these stones, turn them into bread. Just do it. Just if Nobody sees it. You can do it. Temptation. It's a presentation of something that is wrong. He then says to Jesus, he says, hey, let's go up here to the top of this uh, pinnacle of the temple. Jump off and show that you are grandiose and you're... You're, you, you just float down because the angels will protect you from ever stubbing your own toe. He then says, Jesus, see all these kingdoms? I'll give them all to you. You will go straight to the throne. You'll be king of kings and lord of lords. You bypass all this other stuff. Just bow down and worship me. Nobody's looking. You do it right now. Just do that, and it'll all be over with. Jesus was presented with real temptation. Temptation works where there is a draw, where you are enticed, where you're pulled to it. You're even tempted by it. Question, is it a sin to be tempted? I didn't hear anybody. No, all of us face temptation. It is wrong to put yourself where you're constantly under temptation. If you're constantly being tempted by something, it's time to walk away. But tempt being tempted is not where sin begins. There's one thing, that puppy there, look at that biscuit there. When does that puppy do wrong? The fact that he's salivating, is that wrong? The fact that all of his attention's on that biscuit there? When does it become wrong for that dog and that biscuit? It's when he decides to eat that biscuit. There's a debate that goes on inside of every human heart when you're going, should I or shouldn't I? <laughs> when you find yourself in that debate, run, because that's where sin is birthed. That's where sin takes over. You cannot stop the fact that temptation is presented to you. You can't control the fact that all of a sudden you realize, oh, I can't believe what I saw. You can't even control the fact that that is interesting, that is a delight to you, that is something you want. It's when you're trying to decide, should I or shouldn't I? Will anybody know about it? Well, I'll probably get away with it. When you're doing that, that's when you stop and you say, God, forgive me, stop me, I don't want to sin. We struggle way down the path where we've already eaten the biscuit. And we say, God, why didn't you stop me? <laughs> sin then occurs when we, commit, when, we, when we decide to commit it. And then what does the Bible say after we sin? Death is on the way. Now, it may be years down the line, but the wages of sin always is death. When sin is finished, 
It brings forth death. Do you know that happened in the Garden of Eden? Here was Eve, and what is Satan doing? Oh, this is good. And I bet you he was eating his own fruit. <laughs> you should try some. It won't kill you. And she's looked at it, and she said, it's, it's, it's beautiful fruit. It, it looks like it'll make me wise. Oh, wow. This is... And all of a sudden, what is she doing? She's, she's deciding, should I, shouldn't I? I'll do it. And that's where sin began. And then when, when Adam came up, he went, what have you done? No, this is stupid. And he willfully took of the fruit, and he joined with her, and death was on its way. Thankfully, Jesus passed the test. So, the first Adam failed. The second Adam passed. Amen. Verse 13 goes on and says something that's pretty neat. It says that angels ministered to him. Angels ministered to him. Uh, you know, that's their job. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13. <clears throat> Hebrews 1.13. But to which of the angels said God at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? You know, it's their job to take care of us. Now, that's a wild statement. Whether we're aware of them or not, they're at work. And one of these days, we're going we're gonna to be shown just how much God had to have His angels in charge of keeping us safe and alive and, and, and protected from all the things. We think that life is so tough, and if, uh, if, 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 you know, if we have our eyes open, and we will, in heaven where the Lord will say, you know, the devil had you right there, and I intervened, and I kept him from devouring you. Because I sent an angel to protect you. So thank God for angels. And you just see them, they minister. Now I know these guys have angels, wings and angels don't have wings, but I couldn't find a good picture, so you just have to overlook that. And then Jesus, now here's a great thought. Jesus next replaces John the Baptist. Back there in Mark chapter 1, John's prominence diminishes from the moment that he baptizes Jesus. He's only been in the ministry for six months. When Jesus comes on the scene, guess what happens to the crowds that surrounded John? They diminished. They wanted to be around Jesus. People stopped going to hear John preach, and they went to hear Jesus preach. Next thing you find, John gets himself in trouble. Now, if you're a real pastor, if you're a real preacher, if you ever, if you ever get the courage to be a gospel witness on the job or at school, you'll get in trouble. End of story, okay? So say, well, you know, John wasn't smart. No, John was preaching what he should have preached. He spoke out about the, he spoke out about the sin of politicians and even their wives. What a thing. Got him arrested and put in prison. You know what? He never gets out. That was the will of God for his life. When John said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, I don't think John realized how far down he was going to go. And what's great to know is this. This becomes the example that Paul gladly follows. When Paul is captured, it doesn't put him off. He doesn't, like, he doesn't say, oh, no, I had so much more to do. No, even when he was in prison, he said, I pray that the word of God would not be bound. 
and that the gospel would continue. And he didn't worry about the gospel. Even though he was in prison, he knew churches were still being started, souls were being saved, people were being evangelized, because John was his example. Then the gospel ministry continues. Look there in verse 16. I don't want to uh, uh, skip. I, I, I didn't show you the verses far. Verse 14. Now after, <laughs> forgot these verses. Let me just read this. 14. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And there's our word again, and straightway, immediately, they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further to the fence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway, he called them... And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. So you see Jesus coming out of the wilderness, full of the Spirit of God. And as he goes, the first thing he does is he goes up to Galilee. Now, Galilee would be like going to Bali, go backwards. Be like going to the, 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 you know, to the backwoods of County Clare. It wasn't the, the big name. It wasn't the, the hustle and bustle. He went to where life was slow, where people were unimportant. It's kind of a boring place if you went. But it was God's chosen place for the gospel to begin. I want you to realize this. Nita and I came to Ireland. We came and we started a church up in Blarney. Blarney had about a thousand houses. I knocked on every one of them in, in, in just a few months. <laughs> Talked to half of the people. They were all very talkative and stuff. And I started this little church. Bill started coming and ruined it. Uh, and other people started coming out and people coming from all kinds of directions, but out in the middle of nowhere. Now, the normal idea that I meet in church planners is they go right into the middle of the city. And I'm all for that. That's great. No problem. But they go right into downtown, they set it up in the middle of all of the estates and all of the tens of thousands of people, and that's fine. But there's sometimes where God says, I want you to go where nobody is and where nobody will notice you. Because according to Isaiah chapter 9, it says this, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as it was in her vexation when at first he, God, lightly afflicted the land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtali. It goes on, the people that walked in darkness up there, which is Galilee, have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath light shine. And that's a prophecy in Isaiah 9 that was fulfilled when Jesus went right up to the land of Naphtali and Galilee and Zebulun. So sometimes you look at... at, at some people need to say, why did, why did they go here? Or why did such and such missionary go to some strange place and take the gospel there? Because everywhere needs the gospel. And when, 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 when the gospel gets started, sometimes it gets started in small areas, and that's where God wants it. He doesn't want it our way. Big blast on advertising just people to people. He then starts his ministry with preaching. 
Not many miracles yet. What was Jesus' message? Did you notice that? He says, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. Now is the accepted time. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. You must repent and believe the gospel. What do you think they needed to repent of? These are people, maybe they were baptized by John, maybe they weren't baptized by John. We're not sure. All I know is Jesus is calling for repentance to a people who were forgotten. People who probably weren't even considered important in the big scheme of Jerusalem and Judah. And Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. What do they need to repent of, do you think? Hmm? Okay. They're, they're just going through the motions. Good, and that's a good thing to repent of. What else? Self-righteousness? Excellent. See, sometimes we think when the pastor calls out and says, folks, as Christians, there is stuff we need to repent of, and there's, there's not one or two in that entire crowd of 120 people who realize, I need to repent. Everybody's going, oh, that's for somebody else. When we need to repent as much as the, the most backward, most faraway person does, he called for repentance. Jesus then calls his disciples, verse 16. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Now, he went to where Simon and Andrew were. Hmm. That's kind of helpful to me. I uh, didn't expect, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you this. God doesn't make it hard for you to know his will. He doesn't. He'll actually, if you want it, he will show you his will for your life, for moment by moment and for the big schemes of things. He went to them. He's walking alongside and he sees them. And the second thing I want you to see, he's right, he's where they were. And watch them. What does he notice about Simon? And Andrew, what does he notice? Are they sleeping on the beach there, getting a tan? Hmm? Are they complaining about no employment? What were they doing? They were working. And I'm going to be real plain. God doesn't call lazy people. God doesn't use lazy people. He can't use you if you're lazy. He'll take the person that's the busiest and say, I got something else for you to do. I noticed that when I worked for the telephone company. It's kind of a curse. When you get busy and you do what needs to be done and you're, you're, you're busy at it, guess what your boss is going to do? He'll give you more to do. That's what happens. But if you're not doing anything and you're just standing around, nothing's ever going to happen with you, at least not with God. So we watched them, that they were busy. You know, these men were married. Peter had a wife. I don't know if he had children, but he had a wife at home. He had a mother-in-law at home. He's sitting there and... Um, uh, he's, got, he's got not only a job to do, he's got to go home and take care of that business. He's got things going on. Jesus said, I can use him. Marriage doesn't hinder you. Jobs don't hinder you from the service of God. Your pride does. That's all that cops comes between you and the will of God. He called them by name. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 40. 
One of the two which heard John the Baptist speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, I know you. Thou art Simon, the son of Jonas. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. If you want to know the, the pattern, um, Simon means sand. Cephas means stone or small stone, small pebble. So he's moving them up, but he knows them by name. He called them by name. He says, come after me. Now, when, when he called them, what did he call them to do? Leave everything. Leave everything. Hmm? Okay, be followers. Okay, good. But he's got a special calling where he says, follow me. And at that moment, they leave their nets. They abandon the fish that they had caught. Did they abandon their family, yes or no? No, there's some things you don't abandon when you follow Jesus. They brought their family. As a matter of fact, Andrew went and got his brothers. He says, you gotta, you got to hear this guy. And he, they did it for the rest of their lives. The gifts and the calling of God are for how long? They're for the rest of your life. They're without repentance. They're without change. He called them by name. Jesus will actually have to call Peter twice. We don't have time, but in Luke chapter 5, he comes and Peter's back fishing. So tell me if Peter's not stubborn. Matter of fact, after the resurrection, Peter says, I go fishing. Peter's got a little bit of a trouble trying to just break away. He loves fishing, okay? <laughs> Here's the truth. God's calling is the highest calling of all. He says, you guys are good fishermen, but I'll teach you how to catch men. It, it's just breathtaking to know that he uses the simplest of men for the highest callings. He takes the simplest of men and makes preachers out of them. Sometimes I listen to some preaching on YouTube or I listen on tapes, and it's embarrassing. You go, how could he say that? How could he get away with saying that? It's embarrassing. But God called them. God calls Simple people to preach his God. He doesn't call professionals. Amen. He calls the simplest of men to pastor a church, to go and evangelize the lost, to go and start churches, to teach Sunday school classes. My favorite Sunday school teacher of all time was a guy named Lee Barnes. He was 88 years old. When I was in Bible college, I went to Bible college all week long, and I got class after class in Romans, in Old Testament, in, in uh, Christology, and Soteriology, and Eschatology. But in Sunday morning, in Sunday school, Lee Barnes, 88 years old, got up with his hearing aids, these huge hearing aids behind his ears. He was an old farmer. He got up, and he taught us the book of Genesis. And in three years of him teaching, we didn't get past chapter 3. He just... <laughs> He just took his time, and he was the best teacher I've ever known because he was a farmer, and everything was related to dirt and to air and to water and to, and, and to reality. It was awesome. It was an awesome, awesome thing. God takes simple people and uses them for extraordinary things. And what's great is this. They immediately followed him. No debate. No struggle. They had a free will choice. Jesus didn't go, you're following me, you're not. You're following me, and you're... No, that's not how Jesus talked. He said, come. 
Come after me. Follow me. They made a free will choice. They willingly left their father. They willingly left their boat. And they willingly left all the other servants there. And they raced after him. I wish I had that kind of hunger when I opened my Bible to say, talk to me. Now, I do sometimes. But they had a desire. Pick me. Use me today. Some concluding questions. Answer these questions for me. A, number one. How hard do you think it was for Jesus to resist temptation? Yeah, if not harder. He had to resist temptation just like you and I do. Um, I, I didn't read it. I didn't take the time. But in Hebrews, it says, um, well, I read this one, Hebrews 4.15, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched, could not be influenced with the feeling of our infirmities, but we are on all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So I put a little bit more in there saying, I think he knew the extreme of temptation and the pull of temptation. There was another verse. Think about it. It was hard for him to resist. But it wasn't like, oh, should I, shouldn't I? No. It was he, there was no doubt. There was no debate. But he felt the pull. Did he feel hunger, yes or no? Of course he did. Did he feel tired? He felt temptation. Second question. Can we resist temptation the same way that Jesus did? Yes, we can. We can resist temptation the same way because Jesus, when he was tempted, he had a scripture that he believed more than his stomach. Now get a man who believes scripture more than his stomach, you've got a good man. Amen? He had a scripture that was more powerful than his eyes. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Is a good verse to have so that you're not watching stuff on your phone or on the internet or on the television. Amen? You have a scripture that you have more that you believe more than what your eyes want. That's how you resist temptation, just like Jesus did with Scripture. Third, would we be willing to be in John's place in prison if Jesus would get all the attention by us getting out of the way? Did anybody get that? You see, I'm up here preaching, but if I'm in the way of Jesus Christ, am I willing to step aside and fight somebody else? Let Jesus get all the attention. That is a challenge because John had to accept if he's going to get all the attention, I'll step down. What a man. That's why Jesus said John was the greatest man ever born. Fourth question. Do we expect the Holy Spirit to usually lead us to easier lives and better situations? Holy Spirit, lead me today to some sinner who needs the gospel. And then all of a sudden, the tax collector arrives at your door and says, pay up. <laughs> you go, I, I, I don't want you to witness to. <laughs> Fifth, give me some examples of the Holy Spirit leading people into ever harder situations. Give me somebody where the Holy Spirit led them, drove them into something they didn't want to do. When? Okay, good. He had to drive him back to, to Egypt, didn't he? He had to go against him. He had to keep going, keep going, putting pressure on him. He says, you're going, bud. Who else? That's good. I hadn't thought of that. Jonah. Jonah, God had to pull him kicking and screaming. Anybody else? 
How about Hosea being told, you've got to marry a harlot who's not going to be faithful to you? I'm just trying to open your eyes. You know, the will of God is rarely what we want it to be. When God asks us to do something, how long should it take for us to agree and get started? What's the word? Immediately. Straightway. It's convicting, isn't it? Last question. Why do you think Peter and Andrew were so willing to leave their lives of fishing to follow Jesus? Why were they so quick to do that? Why? What do you think, John? Well, he says that about two years into Jesus' ministry, they're leaving at the very beginning. So they got to know something about him. Yes? We found the Messiah, it says, right. But you're on to the truth. Somebody opened their eyes to who Jesus was. Jesus didn't even tell them who he was. John said, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. And at that point, when he called, they answered. My job, like John, is I'm pointing to Jesus, and I'm asking you to say, I'll follow him. I can't motivate you any more than that. And Jesus isn't going to speak from heaven. But that's the job of a preacher, of a soul winner, to get them to look and to go, that's who he is. That's who I want to live for, for the rest of my life. Anybody got a question before we finish here? I like how Mark is written. I kind of go slower. I like how Mark's written. It's like, wow. If I didn't know the rest of Matthew and Luke and John, I wouldn't know these details, so I bring it in. But Mark must really take it for granted. Everybody knows all the background, and he's just hitting the highlights. He's saying, remember this, remember this. Yes, neither. Cookie. Not to look upon a woman in her naked. I, I wasn't going to show all the different degrees of temptation. Agreed. That's right. So if, if the man is actually putting himself into a place where he's going to be tempted, then he's stupid. Okay, because he's already preparing to give in to it. He's allowing himself. That's why the Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. But you can't always control what passes in front of your eyes. That's the point. You can close your eyes. Amen. You can close your eyes or your wife will close them for you. Amen. All right. <laughs> Amen.